Hello and welcome to Business Without the podcast brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. My name's Dominic Frisby, and alongside me today is my co-host and partner at Ori Clark, Andrew Ori, who is on a mission to bring the fascinating business stories that the firm's clients are living to a wider audience with this podcast. So, Andy, hello, how are you doing today and what are we going to be talking about? Thanks, Dom. Today we are joined by our good friend, Michael Brannigan-Harris, CEO of Device Access UK. Michael's got a background in medical and healthcare sales, business development, management, and in 2010, Michael set up Device Access UK, a med tech consultancy firm specializing in, wait for it, market access, which basically means they help medical device and diagnostic companies navigate their way into the NHS, that big, massive, scary, slightly hard to work out where the entrance is uh, organization. And he's incredibly good at it. And ultimately, they accelerate patient access to great medical technology. So we're an excellent company. Don, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for the invites. Nice to be involved. I've always been a fan of uh, Ori Clark. So uh, looking forward to the conversation, guys. So who's going to ask the first question, Andrew? Me or you? You. Okay, well... So here's my first question, and if you can answer this, I'm going to knight you. How does one navigate the NHS? Wow. I don't know about knighting, but um, it's it's very difficult. It's become more and more difficult as the emergence of newer and greater technologies come to market, really. And when I started medical sales back in 1989, I was wandering around selling surgical stockings and dressings and, and sort of ended up introducing all sorts of robotic surgery and implants for vascular cases. And, uh, you know, I was around at the beginning of what was known as keyhole surgery. So I was involved in all that. But I mean, it's become harder. And I think it's a lot of it is around the industry not understanding the customer. And I know we we hear that in all industries uh, across the world of, you know, know your customer, all that stuff. We've heard it. But I actually think, you know, the NHS is a public body and there's enough information out there, including a huge amount of data around what happens in the NHS to these patients. And, and I think that the problem's been that the industry hasn't really started to learn that and, and goes around their practices in a way called marketing, which I don't think works, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute. But it is hard. But if you can show that you can benefit primarily patients, uh, they've got to come out better than they go in. And, you know, so clear demonstration of whatever technology is benefits them. Uh, there's this strange thing about the care provider, which are hospitals. Their businesses, like GP practices are, you know, their businesses, their limited businesses, they want to hit targets and generate revenue. And then you've got a payer system, which which wants to save money. And, and there's a disconnect between the industry engaging with these in the right way and giving them the right messages. So how do you get in? If you have a, an understanding of the customer and what you're going to do to patients, that's a really good start. And when we talk to companies, they know everything about their products, but they often don't know what difference it's going to make to the patient or to the healthcare system. And that's actually a really good way. So I'd say know your customer is a really good way to start by understanding how to get your thing into the NHS. Do I get a knighthood for that? <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure the NHS... It even treats me as a customer. It, it's, it usually treats me when I phone them up as as this sort of cog that gets in the way of the smooth running of the organisation. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's an interesting world, this. And, and I get quite frustrated. You know, we're listening to things in the news um, about how difficult it is to see your GP, for example, right? 
Isn't it difficult to see a GP? But it's a nightmare. But but hang on a minute. Who's been given all these vaccinations in clinics recently when nurses can do the job? I don't know. Well, GPs have, have they? Well, yeah. No, it was impossible to see a GP long before that. They can't use vaccinations as an excuse. I'm sorry. It's been impossible to see a GP since March. Vaccinations have only been around for a few months. No, but hang on. I have to defend the GPs because my wife is one. My wife came back from work not long ago and she said, how many people do you think I've seen today? And I said, I don't know, 20. She said, 91. And I was like, all right. They said, how many do you think we're ill? And I was like, I don't know, 20. And she was like, none. No one was ill, you know, and I think that sums it up in a word. And my, my problem with the system is no one can say it. We mustn't say it. But the worried well, all hypochondriacs, you know, they designed a system that they just didn't expect to still turn up. Now, you could go down lots of routes. You could charge a minimum amount. You could do public advertising, which is what I think they should do. Or, no, what I actually think they should do is put bouncers on the door because they haven't been working in nightclubs recently. You could just be like, you know, what's your problem? Or, oh, oh, I've got a bit of a cough. How long have you had that? A day, off, mate. Do one, will you? You know, and just the only way you sort of limit the entrance. But GPs do an incredibly difficult job. And she says the biggest problem is after you've seen 90 patients, it's very dangerous, she says, because you basically get to a state of mind where you can't believe that anyone's going to be ill. And then when actually the person comes along who's ill, it's hard to pick up on it because you've got in a mindset of every person I'm dealing with thinks they're about to die, but they're all absolutely fine. So it's a hellishly um, complicated problem, I guess. But I mean, what do you feel on that uh, slightly outrageous subject, Michael? I mean, I, I don't know. I think that, you know, it, it, through COVID, so much has changed, hasn't it, really? I mean, you know, we're not travelling anymore. BA have scrapped all of my 747, so I don't really want to travel anymore outside the country. But that aside, I, th- I think that, you know, it, it's going to happen that patients are going to be seen, I think, on Zoom, uh, you know, to speed up appointments and stop all this unnecessary travel initially. And I think that the NHS is all gearing up to more digital-based interactions with patients, whether it's um, some of the wearable things that people wear to track their glucose levels or whether it's uh, other technologies that that um, help patients manage their conditions well and report, you know, when things are going wrong. So that world is coming. but one of the problems around the world that I'm in, which is medical devices versus pharmaceuticals, is the, the whole funding uh, side of it, is that uh, drugs are generally a lot easier to get funded in the system than devices or digital because they can be prescribed. And the whole prescription world is, is really, you know, in, in the world of, of pharma and, and they enjoy that simple reimbursement mechanism for getting their their drugs to patients, whereas with medical devices, it's far harder. So, yeah, I think I think looking at what's happened in the last couple of years, certainly, uh, let's just take uh, the early warning systems in military world. You know, if you, if you were getting a, a nuclear attack, um, like we just had with a pandemic, you'd put in early warning systems to track and trace when these things happen. But the healthcare system in our country was badly affected by, you know, lack of really good diagnostic testing. And I think a lot of the things that we're finding from what's just happened with the with the pandemic is that there is more investment in diagnostic testing. There is more investment in things to help to reduce the calamity of, of COVID-19. So there's a lot of good that's come out of that whole thing. And, and I think it is, um, you know, the future looks really bright for diagnostic and med tech because it's ventilators and diagnostic tests that have been keeping this country going until the vaccines that, that arrived. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the industry should celebrate on what it did um, in, at that time. What's the most 
successful medical product that you've sold? That I've sold uh, would be Venus Closure, which I basically ran the UK subsidiary of a US company called Venus Medical Technologies that uh, introduced a new treatment for varicose veins uh, using a, a tiny wire that would close your varicose veins. So you've seen people on the beach with those wiggly legs and wonder what they are, but you can treat them, although they're not a massive clinical priority for the system now. But back then, you know, the old operation was a, was a treatment that was invented by the Romans where they used to just rip your veins out of your legs and you'd be hobbling around for a little while and in pain. Sometimes they used to rip your nerves out as well as your veins. And anyway, this new treatment we had, stick a wire in the vein, uh, close it off, a bit like the M4. If you shut the M4 off, the traffic goes along the A303 or the A34 or zips, zips around. That's what this thing used to do. And it was a huge success. And we really stopped a procedure that was launched in the healthcare system in 1908 here. And that was a big success story. The company sold to uh, Covidian for $550 million. Again, I'm working, so I didn't do that well out of it, but it was a great thing to be involved in. And, and I used lots of interesting tactics to try and raise awareness of this uh, new treatment, including getting on, I think, 11 BBC channels, talking to the local health correspondents and getting five or 10 minute slots on evening news stories where patients were, were learning there was a new treatment for this painful and unsightly condition called varicose veins. So that was a really good story. So patients would start saying, I want this treatment. Yeah, so we, I, I, what I did, and I suppose that's sort of why I am where I am now, right? You know, as a sales manager running this company, you know, I'd been out in Australia for a year and realised I didn't really like it and came back to, to England and, and had this opportunity to run this company. And my job was to make it as, as easy as possible for my salespeople to sell products. And I remember saying to them, you know, when they started, a lot of them came from the pharmaceutical industry. So they they were very good at talking about health conditions and talking about clinical evidence and talking about all this stuff to GPs and doctors, but they could never see a, a clinical result from it in, in front of their eyes. And, and so I hired them because I wanted a different approach. But when they started, I said, I only want two pieces of paperwork from you guys. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, um, one of them's optional. Uh, the first piece of paperwork I want is purchase orders from your hospital, from the hospitals buying this product. And the second piece of uh, stuff I want from you is optional, and that's your expenses. And, and, and they were like, well, normally I take Friday afternoon and Monday morning off to talk to my sales manager about what I'm going to be doing next week. But I said, I'm not interested in that. Give me purchase orders, send your expenses, and if you want them paid. And that's how it started. And they had this whole new world of being free and running their own businesses. And we had a really, really great team. In fact, I'm very closely connected to them now. And we all got on well. We all looked after each other's customers. We had a lot of fun. And yeah, that was a great time. And, and it was a big success story. Those guys went out, sold lots of products. Do they not need a lot of support, those salespeople? A lot of guidance? Not really? Or... They were clever enough to get on with it in a way. And what I did in the background is I went to NHS England and I said, look, there's this great new treatment. Why don't, why don't you tell everybody about it from the top of the NHS? Can we get some sort of announcement that, hey, this treatment's a really good thing for the NHS for patients, providers and payers, right? So, and that led to an organisation at the time that's gone called NHS Innovations. And, and they basically announced to the NHS that this uh, treatment would save tens of millions of pounds and and something like 45,000 bed days uh, a year and and then that actual uh, event led me into the corridors of mice as it was setting up new programs to evaluate medical devices so the timing was really interesting but all I was trying to do is remove barriers and make the life of my 
team as simple as possible. And as part of that adventure, we turned the conversation around in hospitals from the usual knock on the door, we've got a new piece of technology, it's innovative, we can save you money, which is what everybody says, into we've got a new piece of technology that can, you know, free up operating theatre so you can treat cancer patients with more important issues than varicose veins and generate revenue for the hospital. And, And overnight, the conversations changed about companies coming in to offer products that the hospitals would generate revenue out of, hit targets, reduce length of stay. And and those sorts of technologies have been those that I've worked with since other other areas like prostate and and other other conditions where the NHS has adopted things that that generally do help to help hospitals run more efficiently. And we we do have a great healthcare system. Yeah, what I like about that story is there's um, you were caring about your team, but there's also that dash of naivety you always need to do something bold, which is just, just to say, well, I'm not going to be scared of this big system, and I'm not a scientist obsessed with some sort of like, oh, how it must follow. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go for it. I'm just gonna be bold and just say, you know, who I need to speak to at the top. And I think you you make this point in terms of where you've got to in your career. Like you've come to this from a different mindset and, you know, salespeople, it's not generally very well respected, but your mindset of how, you know, what makes someone buy something, what makes someone need something has been fundamental to knowing how to take a medical advice product into the hospital. I mean, you know, you'll explain it better, but you know, you've got access to data, but also, you know, to go and speak to the CEO, you know, and the scientist tends to want to go and speak to the other scientists, but they never manage to get it, you know, get it across the ground because they sort of get stuck in their own little loop. You know what I'm trying to express. Thank you for those those comments. I think it it was really about, I suppose, some of my success is about getting really good people on board. And I, I put my success down to finding really great people to work with. And and have a lot of fun in, in between. And I, you know, I left school at uh, 16. You know, I, I don't really have any qualifications, never went to university. I presented in Oxford University. I can say I've been to Cambridge. I went there a few weeks ago, but, <laughs> but I, whatever. But, you know, literally, you know, my hunger for sales and success goes back a long time. I suppose even when I was a teenager, when I, I started selling newspapers and the more newspapers I'd sell, the more money I'd make. And I ended up standing outside factories selling newspapers. And 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 so I've always had this interest in sales and interest in medicine. And then I, I combined the two and, and I was lucky that I got into this, into this world that I'm in now. And, and I generally, you know, generally do help patients, uh, you know, so many things that the NHS is using today from you know, introducing alcohol hand gel into hospitals was a thing that, you know, I was involved in, you know, back in the late 80s that, you know, they weren't using these sort of things. So, you know, it's been an interesting world of seeing and working with some amazing people over those years and traveling and, and going to some great places as well. I tend to find, particularly with large organizations and even worse, large government organizations, they're very slow to change. They're very slow to try new things. You know, if you're just dealing with one customer and there's no risk to them in trying out this new product, then it's fine. But if you're dealing with somebody who's somewhere in a large organization, it's often the safer option for them is to display no imagination and just carry on with the status quo. And it's just not worth the career risk, the potential embarrassment, the loss of face of trying out something new and it being no good, even if that product is 10 times cheaper and 20 times more effective. Is that a barrier you've run into? 
Um, I suppose it's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, today I've probably talked to four different technology companies at all ends of the spectrum. And I suppose there's a fear in some of them that they're too afraid to go to the heads of healthcare systems wherever they are, um, because they don't think they've got something that um, can either has the right evidence, has enough evidence, or really does what they think it could do. And there's also always a hesitancy about, you know, you, you ring me and you tell me this product's brilliant and, and it will solve all these problems. You know, if, if I was to sit you in an elevator with the, with the head of, uh, I don't know, Oxford Hospital, what would you say to him about what your technology would bring to their hospital besides you think it might be able to save them money? What's it going to mean for them to change? Because hospitals, um, you know, carry on doing the things they do and carrying patients in the way they do because there's more risk in change than carrying on knowing the results that they're going to get that they've always got. And that's the sort of way it runs, really, is that, you know, there's a risk to change when they know what treatments work at the moment and and you need really good stories to help hospitals to change um, and, and information to get them to change what they're doing and it's challenging and there's risks all the way along, along the way so I think that maybe for me I just felt that you know with some of these companies they do offer really good solutions we try and prove it through the work that we do and and that does lead to more confident conversations for people to to really demonstrate so it's going deeper into the customer and and going deeper into the into what you're going to solve, and and it sounds it sounds very sort of um, you know sort of the sort of stuff you always hear, but the, the NHS you can break it if you if you know uh, what you're going to do for it and and for the patients, and and that's really where I set this company up because there was nobody offering this type of thing in, in the UK that I knew of, and I and. You know, I thought, well, I have a bit of knowledge of this. I'm not afraid to go and talk to NHS England about technology. So I can do this for other companies. And it just seems that we've done that loads and loads of times now. And so, yeah, it's a confidence in it. You know, companies come with great confidence about their products, but they're not generally confident about talking to heads of the organisations that they're trying to sell their products into. And that's sort of where I came in. So you, you solve that problem by going to the head talking to the boss. Well, why not? If you've got a really good piece of tech. So, you know, I can think of one example with a technology that, that was over the news um, a couple of years ago that we worked in. And so, you know, I met a, a, a consultant doctor with, with this company, with this new piece of kit. And, and he said, I really like this. I want to use it, but you're going to have to sell it to the business management hospital. So I saw the business manager and I said, you've got 4,327 patients on your waiting list. You're losing about £800 per case on revenue. Uh, your length of stay is 2.4 days. I can offer a solution where you can treat eight patients in a morning operating list, uh, generate X hundred pounds of the profit and, um, you know, reduce your waiting list quickly. Are you interested? And he said, I'll buy it. And I said, do you know what it, do you want to know what it is? And he said, I'm not interested. If it does that, I'll buy it. And that was it because I knew the customer. And so, and that's what we offer as, as a company in terms of, intelligence in when we do have really good solutions for uh, treating patients we really do go deep into understanding uh, not only how it benefits patients but how it benefits the provider from offering them and and that was a classic sort of story with a really good technology as well that we worked on so yeah it's that sort of you know making sure that we do work with some of the greatest technologies out there and and we do and we're very proud to be working with some fantastic technologies out there solving all sorts of problems from cancers to you know, everything. We've dealt with just about everything I can think of. So yeah, people have confidence in us and we work very hard and, and we have a lot of fun along the way and we generally get there if, if it's a good enough story. And now for a quick word from our sponsor. 
At Ori Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients, and if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? Recently, Dominic Frisby sat down with Andy Ori and James Pleece to talk about tax reliefs. Right, so R&D stands for Research and Development. The scheme is the government's way of supporting companies which are engaged in certain activities they really want to encourage. It's one of the most generous schemes around. Uh, There's technically two schemes, but they operate in fundamentally the same way. Uh, Each one gives you a certain portion of your costs you spend on qualifying activities back. Back in cash. Yes, back in cash. That's important to note. In your bank account, (laughs) surprisingly. So if I spend £100 on R&D, I will get... £33 back for one of them and £10 back for the other one. So the way it works is the government basically says for every pound you spend on R&D, for tax purposes, you can treat it as £2.30. For your deduction in your tax return. And then they say if you've got any losses after this, you can apply a fixed rate and we'll give you cash at that rate. You can find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or to follow us on Spotify so that you never miss an episode. Going back to Dominic's point, okay, so big companies are awful innovators. In fact, people would argue big companies cannot innovate, although, you know, people like Samsung might have a problem with that. But, you know, what normally happens is it's an open market Anyone in our world, in the world you're in, it's like anyone can set up a hospital. It's like India, you know, my, my, some of my um, cousins that I met, you know, cousins-in-law or whatever, who were like, set up this clinic and they're treating the poor. And I'm like, oh, how did you do this? It's like, well, we just find a building and we start, you know. It's like, oh, okay. Um, but, you know, in our country, you can't really set up a place and just start offering something and then suddenly have so many customers that the hospital's going, the hell are they doing down there? Go and find out about it. And then choose to buy them to get rid of them or buy them to absorb their technology. So hospitals have a very, or or the medical system has a very particular problem about how does it innovate. So actually, people like you are really important who have got the time to A, meet technology that's out there, be able to have some sense of evaluating whether they have got the information needed to prove whether that this technology is useful, have a knowledge of what's already being used. And then crucially, which is probably what you should explain, access to the data to be able to say to someone, okay, well, do you know that this place in England has that problem 72 times a day on average, you know? And I mean, you know, ex- explain that a bit because it's it's not something that they're going to hand out to anyone. It isn't. And and, that, and that's a really good point, um, Andrew. I think that what I learned going back into the Barrack of Spain story was that understanding activity and how technology can, can solve a problem. And this one was a problem of large numbers of patients, long length of stay, need for an operating theatre, which cost about £1,200 an hour, plus the surgeon cost, and then a couple of nights or a night in hospital, which is £350. It's quite an expensive night in hospital. So you've got the ingredients there of, of, a, of a problem that, you, you know, hospitals are using an old treatment. Uh, it was taken up operating theatre time and lots of staff in the, those operating theatres and, and valuable bed days. And so 
what we wanted to sort of try and understand was, you know, what happens today. And there's this framework and it's called PICO. It means Population Intervention Comparison Act. It basically means who needs it? Um, what is the new technology? What happens today and what's the difference? And that's the sort of framework that many healthcare systems think about at the highest level before they select technologies and, and expect these companies to be able to answer those questions. So we worked out that by knowing that information, we could get hospitals to realise the gain from change in technology. And that information about length of stay was really valuable in, in the value proposition, which benefited everybody in, in, in you know, patients, providers, payers. So what happened was um, we were, um, we, we'd done this several times and we were able to look at nationally available data which is on NHS Digital website, but we we started to sort of learn that it's, you know, the deeper you go in, the deeper you can find real problems where technology will solve them. So back in 2014, we were able to uh, convince the body that, that holds the NHS data to give us access to some of it for specific purposes. And, and those purposes are not marketing. They're really scientific in finding out about populations, about treatments, about outcomes, things like length of stay, and, uh, you know, costs and activity where we're able then when we get companies coming to us with different technologies, say, well, um, OK, so what what is that population that needs the product and where is that activity happening? And that's where we start working with other parts of the NHS, like the research bodies. And it's only some of the data you have access to because it's what, a billion records or something? Yeah, it's about 1.3 billion. So to just be very clear about this, we cannot identify individuals from the data. So we don't know people's NHS numbers. We, we know whether they're male or female and their ethnicity, but we can't identify individuals from that. When we're not interested in identifying particular people, we're interested in understanding the care pathways, which we could improve, potentially improve by the introduction of a new technology. And it's not just the patient care pathway. It's also now thinking about this current situation, We've got 4.7 million patients on a waiting list, which is the biggest ever I think to date and hospitals need to prioritise hospitals need to look for what's known as operational gain and that's trying to get these very acutely ill patients through the system and treated the priority ones and then getting on with the general work of, of running business the business of a hospital so so a lot of it is is really helping those hospitals to understand what they're doing um, showing the impact of the new technology and that actually helping them to to drive adoption faster and it is a you know it's something that we've been doing now for for, for many years and and it seems to work it seems to shorten that time that it takes for patients to get these great technologies so that's that's sort of essentially what it is and every year we're, we're asked what we did with the data and and um uh you know who we provided it to so we have to justify it and we can't always rely on the fact that we'll always get it but you know every year we have had you know products um going through nice and being nationally recommended and that's what we're passionate about doing so so yeah we've been very fortunate to have that and and interestingly as a country you know we sit on some of the richest you know we've got one single healthcare system as well so we've got a single healthcare system. Whereas you go to Germany and other countries, you've got multiple payers and multiple providers. They're like having lots of Wessex, uh, lots of um, Nuffield hospitals, lots of Boopers, lots of Spires and all these um, private uh, insurance groups and providers. I mean, that's how many countries are. They have lots of private or a mix of private and public funded hospitals and they're all individual and you can't really get a grip on all of them. Whereas in our country, we have a single healthcare system, which is publicly funded with incredible data, fantastic research centres. So I think as a as a country and as a system, certainly now that we're out of the EU, you know, and the, the whole world around um, regulatory approval has changed, um, 
you know, what's happened is the FDA in America has become, you know, just as difficult. Uh, European Union are going through their whole changes of CE marking, and we're about to embark on the new CA mark, which is really exciting for us as a country because my understanding is that we are going to be able to approve technology faster here than any other country. And also, as a country, we're not scared about artificial intelligence like mainland Europe. So we have the opportunity to offer a fantastic system, a fantastic platform for companies you know, from across the world to come here and, and introduce their technologies and um, solve problems. So, uh, you know, we're, we're on the brink of greatness and uh, I'm a great fan of it. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that um, the UK did quite well <laughs> on a relative basis during COVID is that our internet reach is far greater than uh, most other countries in the world I read, even greater than the US. And so Deliveroo and Amazon and so on were able to benefit us so much because our internet reach is so large. But sort of related question, over the last sort of five or 10 years, I keep reading and hearing about how Silicon Valley is turning its attention to what it calls the healthcare problem. And the way that it's solving the healthcare problem is, I think, not too far away from what you're doing, which is the greater use of data, in particularly predictive data. So, for example, rather than get Parkinson's disease and then treat Parkinson's disease, you would do all sorts of DNA testing and various other types of testing and, and learn that you are the sort of person that might get Parkinson's disease and alter your behavior 10 or 20 years before you get Parkinson's disease in order to minimize the chances of you getting it. And the same goes for, you know, pretty much any illness. Similarly, you know, greater use of tech devices, mobile phones, smartwatches, and all the rest of it to constantly monitor what's going on with our bodies, monitoring our diets, monitoring our heartbeat, monitoring our blood pressure. And again, using that this data to, to make sure we behave better. How big a, an impact is all this data med tech? I don't know what, there's probably a more accurate term for it, but how big an impact is all this data med tech going to have? Um, I think it's really exciting. You know, there's all sorts of challenges in different countries around privacy and sharing of data and all that sort of thing. But I think the the future is really exciting where people can manage their own health. And I think people, the sort of younger generations now are being able to be using these things, these platforms to understand, um, you know, what their body is doing and how it's performing, whether it's from a sport perspective or just, just living, right? So, Interestingly, and, and when you started asking me about that or, or commenting, at the other end of the scale, about 10 years ago, I was in America and I met with a company that had a wearable sensor. At the time, it was when we were fascinated by the accelerometer in an iPhone that you could you know, have it in a different position and know where, where you were. Well, they'd invented um, a wearable sensor that they'd given to patients with through an insurance company, private insurance companies that are interested in people's lives and their activity and their eating habits and their sleeping habits and whether they smoke, drink or eat or how active they are. And, and they were giving these sensors to patients post certain operations and seeing how well they recovered from them and whether they were active, what they were sort of watching on television, whether they're on the internet. And, and we're using it to measure um, and, and work out how to 
price um, the policies through knowledge of that patient, that that patient's background, social, economic, um, and activity post-operative to see, you know, how to price policy. So, you know, that's an American thing that I, I, I saw ten years ago. So some of it can be used in in really interesting ways to to, to work out, um, you know, patient recovery. But I think overall, you know. People are interested. I think it's a really good thing. Whether how the NHS funds those sort of things is a challenge for the future. Is are we expected to get the NHS to prescribe these types of wearables or these types of apps, or are we going to take it upon ourselves to fund them ourselves? And at the moment, you know, some countries are, are more advanced at funding that sort of thing than others. And yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's a really exciting area, um, and I think it's going to have to come because of the the demands on the healthcare system is we've got a, you know, growing elderly population. We've got people, you know, re- retiring from the healthcare system at quite a high rates and leaving. And, um, and it's all going to go in this direction to, to one way or another. And it goes back to what we're talking about, GP appointments and Zoom meetings and, you know, with the GPs. That's really interesting about the, the you know, is the NHS going to be expected to, you know, buy people an Apple Watch? And what level, what level of Apple Watch do you get? <laughs> do you get the top of the range one or do you only get the basic one? I think, you know, a lot of people who who are, you know, turning their minds to to solve the NHS problem, one of the ongoing issues is at what point does the NHS say, no, that is not essential? You know, what is basic healthcare and what is a luxury? And I, I do think if the NHS is to survive and and not be just an even bigger money pit than it already is, that dividing line, you know, what what is basic medical care and what isn't needs to be clearly stated and agreed upon. And obviously, you know, one faction of society is going to argue that the dividing point should be here and another faction of society is going to argue that it should be over here somewhere. It depends too whether how it affects you personally, doesn't it? It changes a lot yes. if you're suddenly, oh, I'd, you know, I remember having an argument with someone years ago saying, well, I think if you, if you don't give up smoking after you've been asked and you found that you've got lung cancer again or something, that that's it. They should just throw you on the par. And I was like, yeah, you say that till that's your dad it's happened to and then you'd be a slightly different person. So we come to the end, uh, to, towards the end of our interview, Mike, and we come to our generic questions section. And I'll start with the first one. What is the best piece of advice you were ever given? Well, this goes back to when I started this world in medical sales. And um, best piece of advice was determination and persistence. And uh, it was something to the, the founder of McDonald's and Ray Kroc. My, my sales manager just said to me, uh, most important thing is determination and persistence. It's not knowledge, it's not education, which I didn't have a lot of and still don't think I'm an educated person because I'm not and I went to university and all that stuff. But I think it was, um, you know, being persistent and determined about what you're doing. So best bit of advice is from him. Determination and persistence. What are you most excited about for the future of your business? Um, well, uh, what am I saying? I'm just... Uh, I just think we're we're on the brink of a really good opportunity here with the uh, getting out of the EU, um, simpler, faster regulatory processes here in England, uh, more money being thrown into the healthcare system, more patients needing new technologies, healthcare system needing better ways to deal with the waiting list. And so I think that all throw it together, that's a big opportunity and we're hoping to to be on the brink of that and, and continue to bring great technologies to patients faster. And finally, can you give us some uh, phrases that define what business means to you and what bullshit means to you? 
you know, in, in this world, that, I mean, in medical devices, it's, uh, you know, companies really not thinking about value and just focusing on sort of the simple features and benefits that the approach that uh, the industry takes sometimes about getting complex, life changing technology into patients lives is that they try and sell them like somebody would sell dog food to a supermarket chain. And, you know, if you buy 50, I'll give you 10 free sort of nonsense. That does happen and it's wrong. Um, so bullshit is really, yeah, around trying to trying to introduce these things um, in this world where they they don't really understand the impacts, and and that that's really where we come in. So yeah, that that would be it. Is really understand the impact and understand the customer. Otherwise, it's bullshit. Michael Brannigan Harris, it's been a real pleasure. Um, as we close, if people want to find you online, find you and more about what you do, how would they go about doing that? So on LinkedIn, so uh, you can find me there, Michael Brannigan Harris. Uh, company is deviceaccess.egis.com. Uh, That's deviceaccess.igs.com. And uh, yeah, we've got a Spotify channel as well. We put things out to help the industry learn about uh, how to engage with the NHS better. Um, but that's it, really. Great stuff. Well, Michael Brannigan-Harris, thank you very much. Thank you to Andrew Ory, my co-host. Thank you to you, dear listener, for listening, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's at biz without BS, B-I-Z without BS, where you'll find more helpful business content. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for us using the hashtags biz without BS, that's B-I-Z without BS, or Ori Clark, O-U-R-Y Clark. Until then, goodbye. Business Without is brought to you by Ori Clark. We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. To find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at oriclark.com. That is contact at O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K dot com or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.